Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again for a brand new episode of the lovely podcast that is People Are Wild. My name is Kim, and I'm your friendly neighborhood ER nurse of a host, and I have some announcements, observations, and or commentary follow-up or whatever I do in the beginning of my shows. I've been watching The Magician's Code on Netflix recently, and I have to say this, I'm going to announce it right now, I am considering an official career change. You remember that show, right? With the creepy magician who revealed how magic worked and ended up pissing off a lot of other magicians, Job Bluth was fuming, I'm sure. But it showed how David Blaine and Chris Angel did a lot of their tricks. Oh, I'm sorry, illusions. And it was actually a really fun show to watch. And as I was re-watching the show, I realized maybe I could make a great magician's assistant. You see, this show is everything you would expect from a show devoted to magic that was filmed in the 1990s. It was set in an abandoned warehouse, no doubt where 80% of all music videos in the 90s were filmed. It had this weird, ominous soundtrack in the background that was reminiscent of the X-Files, but it did have a creepy, gross narrator who made some disturbing comments about the assistants at the time. So you know what? Upon further review, maybe I don't want to be a magician's assistant. Guess I'll stick to nursing and bringing you the fire that is this podcast. Now, speaking of fire, I've lit my Snoop Dogg prayer candle and it smells weirdly like gin and juice. And I've listened to Tall Bachman's She's So High on loop repeat for an hour, so I'm ready if you're ready to talk about how people are wild. Now, if you haven't noticed by the lit candle and music choice for this week's episode, let me spell it out for you. This week holds good old 420, which is on Friday. And if you're anything like me, you were naive and didn't know what 420 really meant until somewhat fairly recently. See, I grew up in the generation of dare, and to this day, I still own my dare shirt. Thank you very much. For those who are not fortunate enough to live in the era that was dare and say no to drugs and Pee Wee Herman preaching about how crack is whack, allow me to give you a brief explanation. DARE was a nationwide initiative where law enforcement officers would come into elementary and high schools and speak with students about the perils of drugs and alcohol. It was founded in 1983 and for a time was taught up to 75% of American schools. This was all in an effort to increase awareness and empower us younglings to identify peer pressure situations and then stand up and say no to it. DARE stood for Drug Abuse Resistance Education, and I can remember my D.A.R.E. class because it was a big deal to graduate from the program. It was a whole thing. Like, there was a ceremony. It's like when people advanced through kindergarten, which kindergarten graduation ceremonies are cute, but really? I don't understand. And I think at my D.A.R.E. ceremony, I even won an award where they, um, what was it called? They, they gave me, like, a Darren. Was it his name? Darren? Darren the D.A.R.E. Lion Award. But here's the truth bomb. DARE didn't work. Students who undergo the program were just as likely to use drugs as those who haven't, and maybe even more likely to drink or smoke cigarettes. So swing and a miss. For me though, that program worked like a charm. I was petrified to do drugs. I was scared to accidentally even look at one. Look at one? What am I doing right now? Anyways, I grew up watching Hulk Hogan preach to me to train, say my prayers, eat my vitamins, be true to myself, and be true to my country. And I was terrified that if I did alcohol or drank drugs, my life would be over because doing alcohol and smoking drugs are not cool to me, Michael Scott. So perhaps by extension, 
I grew up not understanding what the phrase 420 friendly meant when I was looking at Craigslist ads as I was trying to buy and or sell collectible Monopoly sets for a quick buck in high school. That's a fast and furious world, you guys. I'm very lucky that I've gotten out of that underground movement. Now, I didn't even understand most of Afro Man's timeless anthem because I got high, but I would sing along to it with gusto with my friends because it was a catchy song. After all, I still don't even know what the phrase I found you miss new booty even means, but anytime I hear Bubba Sparks Kali Park, I will lip sync for my life and Shantae, I stay. I also digress. So in my world of drug resistance education, a joint to me was a part of your skeletal system. Okay, I wasn't that naive, I think. Maybe I was? Point is, D.A.R.E. worked on me, and I never really drank until I was in college, I never smoked a cigarette, and in fact, I probably was like the god warrior on trading spouses and rebuke cigarettes in the name of the Lord. Cigarettes are dark-sided and tainted, and I don't want any part of it. And thanks to 12 years of Catholic school and the guilt associated with that, it wasn't until I was well out of college and recreational use of weed was legalized in the state I was living at at the time that I even tried anything. And so one fine day when I was off of work, I headed out on a quest to get some edibles. And I acquired them from a reputable and totally awesome dispensary the next county over. One of my pals had told me what to look out for and gave me a few recommendations on what would be good edibles. So I purchased a package of butterscotch cookies based upon their recommendations. Then I went home and I placed them in a safe spot for the next day when I would go on my first adventure into getting high, I guess. So I procured essentials, lots of water, some ginger ale, and 10 boxes of mac and cheese that were on sale. I was, I hope, ready for this. Cue the spirit fingers, Sparky Pilastri. These are golden. So I got on my Snuggie, put on some sade in the background, smooth operator, and ate one cookie. On the box, it talked about waiting an hour before eating another cookie. I decided to wait 10 minutes. And then I made the executive decision that edibles weren't doing shit and proceeded to eat another, and then another, and then another, and then one more, all within a 30 minute time frame. So to recap, I had five edibles within about 30 to 45 minutes. At about minute 59, I thought to myself, man, what a jib. These edibles aren't doing shit. Because that's the exact moment when the edibles hit, all five of them. And I proceeded to immediately lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling, trying to figure out life's mysteries while also making sure that I did not melt into a pile of goo like I was Alex Mack. I thought to myself, why are highways called highways? And man, the first person to sleep must have thought they were dying, right? And what the hell does Mr. Boombastic even mean? I also noticed that I got very paranoid within 15 minutes of that bass drop from my edible feast. I kept looking around because I made the mistake of watching one of my favorite horror movies that day, The Descent, and when the edibles hit, I seriously thought crawlers were going to come for me. By the way, a fantastic movie to watch when you're not high. Horrible decision to watch it if you're high. I just need to stress to you guys that the original version's ending is the best and don't you dare settle for the US version that ruined that ending and don't even pay any mind to this sequel business that was made. Now, after my edible fail, I smoked pot a handful of times and now that I do what I do in my older, more seasoned years, as a travel nurse, you have to pee into a cup every time you take a new assignment. So I get drug tested every three months. And so it's made my life considerably much easier to just not partake in the good old THC anymore. Also, I don't eat poppy seed bagels when I'm in my drug screen window 
when I have to go to a new assignment for fear of being like Elaine from Seinfeld and losing my job because I ate lemon poppy seed bread. I know I'd have to eat like heaps and heaps of bread, but clearly you don't know what I'm like around bread. It could happen is all I'm saying. I might have shut down an Olive Garden at some point in my past. But the takeaway is this. I did inhale and I did partake in my younger years, but I no longer do so because one, weed never really helped me with relaxing and that's why I would use it to an extent. If anything, I would get so paranoid that I thought cops would be able to smell it from whatever campsite I was at and swarm in with a whole SWAT team and my life would be over then and there. And number two, I'm just boring as hell now and I would rather relax with a cup of tea and a good book. I don't know how it happened, I don't know when it happened, but it did happen. Also, begs the question, milk in your tea, is that a yes or no? Now, let me just take the time real quick to mention that I am all for medicinal marijuana, as it has been proven numerous times to help people with a variety of conditions and diseases. But there's something curious that has begun to emerge in emergency medicine specifically in the last 10 years, I would say, especially as more states legalize recreational and medicinal use of marijuana. So a 22-year-old who has a six-year history of smoking pot, comes into the ER for the third time in the past two months. He was having reoccurring episodes of nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. He's actively dry heaving in the waiting room, and ain't nobody got time for that. He gets a room with a door so you can close it because dry heaving is the worst sound in the world to me. An IV is started, he's given fluids through it, as well as a mix of nausea and pain medicine. He mentioned before that at home he found some relief from taking a hot bath, and that's when things click in the brain. Homeboy is more likely to have CHS, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Much like Matchbox 20, we're going to head for a breakdown of what CHS is and possibly is not. And I'm going to try and do this as accurately and politically correct as possible. Well, one of those is probably true. So let's go back to another patient. There's a 23-year-old female who has no past medical history that presents to the ER for the fourth time this month, complaining out of severe 10 out of 10 maxed out abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Now she denies alcohol use, but reports she has smoked at least one marijuana bud daily for the last three years. In an attempt to relieve her symptoms, she has increased her marijuana use. However, she has found that her pain is actually increasing, and the only thing that appears to help is taking a hot shower or a hot bath. And here again, ding, 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 we immediately consider cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, CHS. So CHS was first described in Australia in 2004 in a major journal and is characterized mostly by these things. Years of cannabis abuse, cyclic episodes of nausea and vomiting, and this sort of conditioned behavior of hot showers or hot baths in an attempt to relieve symptoms. This should be mentioned that this Australia study was done on people who smoked weed and not really anything else, not those who dab or use edibles. By the way, story time. The first time I heard the term dab was when a patient was telling me about the drugs they use and they said that they had dabbed before they came into the ER. And I was so bewildered internally, but externally I documented it in quotes and brought the patient to a room. The ER doctor read my note and was supremely confused. So for a good five to 10 minutes, before we even really went back into the room, we had to Google what the hell dab, dabbing, dabbers meant. And so dabs are also known as 
butane hash oil, which are sometimes called butter with two Ds, honeycomb, or earwax. And they are more potent than conventional forms of marijuana because they have much higher concentrations of the psychoactive chemical tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, than is found in regular cannabis. So, a little dab will do you, right? What if you dab while dabbing? And then you have a dab session. Also, I just realized how much lingo is going to be thrown around this episode. So I apologize in advance if I sound like an out-of-touch adult trying to relate to teenagers. Guys, I just want to fit in. Look at my cool converse. Dab on them. No, not that dab. Am I cool yet? I don't know. Hello, fellow kids. So speaking of THC, when it comes to CHS... Again, we're focusing primarily on those who smoke weed and smoke it pretty damn heavily and frequently. So with THC, this is the principal active compound of cannabis and acts similarly as the endogenous cannabinoid on cannabinoid receptors. What in the hell did I just say? Okay, so inside our bodies are two distinct cannabinoid receptors, which are sometimes abbreviated to CB1 and CB2. Cannabinoid receptors located throughout the body are part of the endocannabinoid system that is in our bodies, which is involved in a variety of physiological processes, which includes appetite, pain sensation, mood, and memory. So did you ever wonder why after smoking a spliff, you feel hungrier than a bodybuilder post-competing? It's because the THC boosts those CB receptors that are already in your body, and this in turn increases hunger and will decrease nausea. And that's why you get the munchies. And that's why medicinal marijuana works for cancer patients and the like in terms of appetite increase and nausea control. So CB1 receptors have been identified in multiple organ systems, including the brain, spleen, liver, heart, uterus, bladder, and the gastrointestinal system. Less is known about the CB2 receptor effects though. And it is hypothesized that they are more likely involved in the inhibition of inflammation and have a role in intestinal motility, which is how your gut moves things around. It has been hypothesized that THC is the causative agent of CHS because of long-term stimulation of those CB1 and CB2 receptors. And this results in gastrointestinal disturbances, the nausea and vomiting. Essentially, THC does something to screw up the pre-existing wiring in your organs and in your body with prolonged use of weed, at least smoking it, it seems like. So what happens with CHS? I've been throwing around that term a lot, And you might be wondering, what are some signs and symptoms that you look out for? Well, in the ER, this is what usually leads us to a CHS path and diagnosis of sorts. So long-term weekly cannabis use, and that could be years of this. Abdominal pain, severe nausea and vomiting, and relief of symptoms with hot showers or hot baths. If somebody comes into the ER and they pretty much check off all those markers and indications, it's a good chance that CHS is in play. Now, CHS is often under-recognized and diagnosed only after probably multiple visits to an ER and extensive workups to rule out all the bad stuff. The most effective long-term treatment is the cessation of cannabis use. 
Patients who stop smoking weed report, begrudgingly, a complete stop to their symptoms. So Samson no longer gets you lifted. In the ER, treatment is directed towards symptom management. So an IV is started, fluids are given, electrolytes are replaced, and medication can be given to alleviate nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Opioids for pain relief with the abdominal pain actually sometimes are avoided for a little bit because sometimes they can exacerbate nausea and vomiting. Typically, anti-emetics, anti-nausea medicines such as Zofran, Phenergan, Compazine, and Reglan can be given, but they're not given by themselves. They're usually paired up with a friend, like Miss Clavel's girls in Madeline. Treatment with haloperidol, or Haldol as it's affectionately called in the ER, can be considered. A case report found that patients had resolution of their symptoms within two hours of receiving Haldol and were able to be discharged from the ER within eight hours as their symptoms were controlled and managed. Now, benzos like lorazepam, which is Ativan, should be considered as a treatment option, especially for nausea. And if you're looking up some of the meds that I just besieged your mind with, you'll notice that some of them actually fall into different categories like antipsychotics or anxiety medicines. CHS has given the emergency medicine world a bit of a challenge, and it's with trial and error that clinicians are making a small dent in treating individuals with it. I'm talking about a really small dent, like the kind you make when you hit that parking structure in your friend's car that they still don't know about, Donna. Now, those meds are used primarily for one thing, but they've been proven to help with CHS. So it's kind of, like I said, this trial and error phase that is continuing to go on in terms of treating patients with CHS. There are various medical interventions to treat them, but what else can be done? As mentioned before, Patients who have this syndrome are pretty darn compulsive with taking hot showers or hot baths, which by the way, baths, I I just can't get on board with that. Sitting in a lukewarm pool of your own dirt is not up my alley. Anyways, after they take these hot showers or baths, they report relief of symptoms during that shower or sitting in the baths. So you'll find people coming in who say, I've been taking a bath for hours and it's helped me, but now it doesn't help and that's why I'm in the ER. So why does this work? Well, short answer, no one really knows for sure the reason why it helps with pain relief. Yay, science. Longer answer. Hot water activates transient receptor potential vanilloid 1 receptors, resulting in impaired substance P signaling in the area postremia and nucleus tractus solitarius. Did you catch that? Yeah, you totally got that, right? Hot water makes your belly feel better because of receptors and things. There, translated for you better than Rosetta Stone Medical Edition. You're welcome. It is rather impossible and not feasible to have patients shower and especially take a hot bath in the ER for symptom relief. However, there is something that we can do in the ER as a trick of the trade, if you will, to simulate and get the same sort of effect in terms of pain relief. So here is your trick of the trade for CHS. Apply capsaicin cream to the abdomen. So topical capsaicin cream, you know, that stuff you buy at Walgreens at the last minute before you buy your 16th chapstick because you freaking forgot it in your car. It binds to these receptors and impairs some signaling, which offers pain relief, much like that hot shower or hot bath will. 
So all the good stuff that comes with hot water happens with the cream application. In fact, multiple case series and reports have seen that when capsaicin cream was used in the ER, it was found to provide adequate relief of symptoms. In a case series of 13 patients in two academic medical centers diagnosed with CHS, when they were treated with capsaicin cream, they had an improvement in symptoms when all other treatments had failed. Now, some companies and entrepreneurs have even begun selling capsaicin creams in dispensaries, sort of like a preemptive strike, I guess. So maybe that's like if you pop the Zofran, which is an anti-nausea medicine, before you decided to go out and uh, party hardy on your 21st birthday. Not that I did that, but it's the whole idea maybe of a preemptive strike. And I remember I looked up one of the companies and I think on their website, it said something along the lines of, for when you smoke too much weed and you can't take the heat, apply this cream. I just feel like in the ER, we missed out on a very, very good opportunity to potentially make millions of dollars because we stumbled upon this years ago. So why is CHS a big effing deal in the ER? Well, the answer is a bit of a goose chase, so get on your best running shoes because we're about to get after it. Now, Dr. Cecilia Sorensen, who is an emergency room doctor at the University of Colorado at Anschutz, says that after marijuana was legalized in Colorado, they had a doubling in the number of cases of cyclic vomiting syndrome, which was probably related to marijuana use in hindsight. So now we kind of have to pause things real quick. We come to the confusing intersection that is CVS and CHS. SOS, please someone help me. It's not healthy. Rihanna was right. So here we need to stop for a second. If you read some articles about CHS, it mentions CVS. And we're not talking about the store that I swear no one works at at night. Okay, here. I've never seen a CVS employee walking around in the wild when I've had to stop there at 2 a.m. But suddenly they pop up at the cash register when I need to be rung up. I have a theory about this, but this is not the episode to reveal it. This is not the time or place. But CVS, I'm watching you. No, the CVS I'm going to confuse you about in regards to this episode is cyclic vomiting syndrome. Again, depending on what articles you read, sometimes they'll say CHS is a form of CVS. And if you read another article, CHS and CVS are completely different. So let's go to the facts, Joe Friday style. Here's what happens with CVS, cyclic vomiting syndrome. So the cyclic part of the syndrome is due to the fact that it occurs and progresses through four distinct phases. Now there's the rest period of sorts between episodes where a person is relatively free of symptoms. It's kind of like the eye of the hurricane, everything's calm. But much like the scorpions saying, here I am, rocky like a hurricane, let's go to the prodromial phase. This can be triggered by stress, infections, menstrual periods, yay for being a woman, or, and I need to compose myself, pleasant excitement. This can all trigger the beginning of a cyclic vomiting episode. What the hell constitutes pleasant excitement, I wonder? And does that mean you have to monitor your happiness level like it's a life bar and you're sub-zero from Mortal Kombat and about to finish him? Well, for a range of different reasons, the patient gets triggered. And this means that the patient senses this approach of an episode, like a horrible spidey sense that's attuned to nausea and vomiting. But at this stage, the patient can still hold down medication. But eventually, 
if it doesn't get maintained and it starts getting out of control, a patient will enter the next phase, which is hallmarked by vomiting, which can last, and get ready for this, from less than 12 hours to up to seven days. Okay, I hate hate vomiting. As in, I hate feeling nauseous and then vomiting. I hate feeling nauseous. I hate vomiting spontaneously. I hate all of that. And I can't even imagine dealing with that for upwards of seven days or sometimes even more than that. I would rather watch Tara Reid's film anthology on repeat. I would rather eat a mayo and ketchup sandwich on white bread for seven days. I would sit in a room and listen to Dina Lohan offer me advice on parenting for seven days straight. Anything but nausea and vomiting for that long. That phase can be broken with medical interventions, and that's usually when we see people in the ER. And so that leads into the recovery phase, which begins with the stopping of vomiting, and the recovery phase ends when hunger and oral intake return to normal. So there again, you're back in your happy phase where there's nothing wrong. So that's cyclic vomiting syndrome. Now with CHS, they have a long buildup phase that can take several years for some patients. If you remember, the previous two patients I talked about had been heavily smoking for years. So during this slow burn of sorts, they can have nausea, abdominal pain, and a well-placed fear of vomiting while still maintaining normal eating patterns. They probably are at this point smoking more pot in an effort to alleviate nausea and pain, but inadvertently and unknowingly, they're actually making things worse. At some point, they get to the hyperemesis phase, which displays itself with heavy nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. This is when we see people in the ER. Medical interventions are initiated, and once that episode is broken through, the recovery phase begins. Now, in order to keep this recovery phase, because unlike cyclic vomiting, you can control whether or not CHS comes back. You just have to stop smoking weed. And once you do that, your recovery phase lasts for days to months to more than likely years. Ah, sweet drug-free freedom. McGruff the crime dog would be so proud. But sometimes denial is not just a river in Egypt, and a patient might think that they can get away with smoking every now and then. A return to cannabis, ooh, great name for a ukulele cover band that does Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg songs, by the way. This return to cannabis will sort of build up to this inevitable reoccurrence, and we're back to that hyperemesis phase. At this point, modified medical interventions are introduced again in the ER. Things that once worked might not work, so you have to get a little bit more creative. But again, the complete cessation of use of weed, smoking specifically, will stop this CHS in patients. And commitment to that abstinence will secure that containment of CHS. Commitment to abstinence? Who am I? Jessica Simpson's creepy father? So you can kind of see the difference with CVS and CHS. But again, if you look up different literature and research, the terms can sometimes overlap within an actual research article. And sometimes they're used in tandem. So for most of the episode, I've tried to just differentiate CHS and CVS, but now I'm just gonna make this all confusing. So Dr. Robert Gladder is an emergency room doctor out of New York. And he said he saw patients with CVS. This is his report of stuff. So he says that it was CVS for years before the wider medical profession realized there may be a link between that syndrome and marijuana use. 
So he said that he would see people in the ER with this heavy and chronic use of weed who would have these vomiting syndromes like cyclical vomiting and abdominal pain like cyclical vomiting. And they just didn't know what it was. Cyclical vomiting has different triggers and different phases. This was a little bit odd. So he said that the CVS that he saw was underrecognized and underreported at the time. Hell, it was still termed CVS. So part of the reason why it took so long to draw this link between marijuana use and what was going on with these patients is because weed is typically thought to reduce nausea and vomiting. If you look at the pharmacology of cannabinoids, there are multiple types, and at low doses, a majority of them help with nausea control. But he goes on to say that with higher and heavier usage, you develop this somewhat paradoxical effect, this rebound effect, this incidence of vomiting and nausea. So the higher and heavier usage part of that is the key to distinguishing between CVS and CHS, I would think. So most people who smoke weed, who come to the hospital, who've been doing this for a while, I mean this, they've been doing this for a while. They smoke heavily and daily, three to five times per day, and they're doing this for years. So just as a disclaimer, I'm not saying that heavy long-term use of marijuana leads to this condition, but it might. And doctors still aren't sure what makes some people more predisposed to developing this syndrome than others. And it's unclear why marijuana can produce such a weird effect for some people in this rebound paradoxical reaction. The best way to maybe think of it is that it's similar to developing an allergy to a favorite food. Betrayed by your beloved calzones. So maybe the biggest takeaway is this. If somebody has CHS, it can be 100% remedied, at least with current literature that we're seeing. And the one foolproof way to do that, stop smoking weed. And hot showers and hot baths only help on a short-term basis. Same with medication control. But they have seen 100% reversal of symptoms with discontinuing drug use for patients who have CHS. So, I hate to sound like this, but I'm going to channel my inner D.A.R.E. officer, Officer Karlik, and just say this. If you love weed and hate puking, it's probably wise to limit your cannabis intake sooner rather than later, and perhaps even consider it as a complete stopping of smoking weed. So I kind of glossed over this, but is CHS an offshoot of CVS like how Joey was an unnecessary spinoff of Friends? Well, no. And maybe yes, the jury's still out on that, it seems. There's so much new research coming out about CHS and cyclical vomiting syndrome that we're trying to figure out the differences, the commonalities, the similarities, and everything else in between on what we can do to help people with one and help people with the other. But it seems as though if you have a true CHS diagnosis, patients see symptom reversal when they stop smoking weed. So now that you're sufficiently confused, let's go ahead and put a bow on this and wrap it up by telling you this story. By the time Thomas made the connection between his marijuana habit and the bouts of pain and vomiting that left him incapacitated every few weeks, he had been to the emergency room dozens of times, tried anti-nausea medicines, anti-anxiety medicines, antidepressants, endured an upper endoscopy procedure tube down the top, 
and two colonoscopies. Tubes down the other way. Tubes up the other way? Sure. Seen a psychiatrist and had his appendix and gallbladder removed, all in an effort to figure out what was going on with him. Now, he said the only way to get relief for this nausea and pain was to take a hot shower. And he often stayed in the shower for hours at a time and could be in and out of the shower for days. Which reminds me of that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer decides to basically live in his shower and he makes the the salad at the end. I'm sorry, that's like one of my favorite episodes, by the way, with putty germs. Okay. When the hot water ran out, he said that the pain was unbearable, like someone was wringing my stomach out like a washcloth. And it took nearly 10 years until a doctor finally diagnosed him with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Now, Thomas said that he quit smoking once he accepted the fact that weed was causing his problems. But he acknowledges that he himself was in denial for a long time. So he shares his story with the hopes that other people can learn from his experience. Because he says, quote, I hope they'll be honest with themselves so they don't have to go through what I've been through. I'm very lucky to have survived this. It's like a living hell. In another case study, one 33-year-old military vet who asked not to be identified described that he would have bouts lasting up to 12 hours in which he felt like a pufferfish with sharp spikes was inflating and driving spikes into my spine from both sides. And I've broken bones and this blew it out of the water. So this is 10 out of 10 severe abdominal pain. And a lot of clinicians and healthcare providers have seen people who have had to lose their jobs and gone bankrupt from repeatedly seeking medical care and have been misdiagnosed for years. The thing with CHS is that it's relatively uncommon right now. Now, if I were to fast forward in 10 years, I'm sure a lot of what this episode is talking about it's going to be outdated. And maybe we'll see an increase in that CHS population of patients. But for right now, it's considered mostly an uncommon and somewhat rare syndrome. Now, one thing that I really liked in one of the articles I read in doing research for this episode was this statement. Marijuana is probably safer than a lot of other things out there, but the discussion about it has been so politicized and the focus has been on the potential benefits without looking rigorously at what the potential downside might be. No medication is free from side effects. Maybe that's the takeaway I want people to have when they listen to this episode. No medication is free from side effects. So be careful if you partake and please be responsible and be aware of this condition. And while I said it is uncommon, it is very real, very painful, and can be devastating to those who have it. Now, if you are one of those people who has it, don't smoke pot. It'll put you right back where you were right back at square one. And you don't want to be in that level of hell that Dante forgot to write about. Do yourself, your body, your mind, and your spirit a favor. And don't have a recurrence. You can prevent that. Hopefully, you have a good rapport with your healthcare provider to consider other options that might help you and not harm you. Remember, in medicine, we do no harm. And doctors take uh, the hungry, hungry hippo oath, right? Fun fact, pretty sure that I never had to take an oath because if I did, I fell asleep or showed up late. So there's that. So now we've come to the end of my 420 episode. And that means we've come to the best game about foreign objects stuck in people on this side of the podcasting world. You got what stuck where. So I give you four clues. You guess what got stuck where. And if you're the first person most correct, you win stickers, bragging rights, and a hearty two thumbs up from me. And also usually one of the clues 
is actually the where because like I said, I'm lazy and I can't sometimes write for clues. So I just build in the where but the name stays. So here we go. Clue one, this happened during Labor Day weekend in Northern Idaho. Clue two, this happened to a young woman who was driving with her husband on a back road when they took a turn and ended up in a bit of situation that would need different sort of sprucing up. Clue three, it took six hours to remove the object that was stuck in this woman. And clue four, that's because the object that was stuck in her was actually stuck through her. She was essentially shish and impaled as the object passed through her neck and into her shoulder. So there are your clues. Give me your guess. It's the least you can do. You can tweet to me on the Twitter at peoplearewild. You can even shoot me an email, peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. And hey, maybe in the future, I won't be afraid of other platforms, but right now that's all I got for you. So have a beautiful week ahead. Practice random acts of kindness. Be responsible out there. And remember, somewhere on the internet, exists a video of a woman who has a satanic toaster.